In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Welcome once again to Strange Planet. Good to have you aboard. There are so many, well, countless podcasts out there. It's like how many stars are in the heavens? That's how many podcasts are out there. And um, I think it's important from time to time to shine a spotlight on some of the, uh, the more exceptional ones. Uh, I do this as a public service so that it's easier for you to find the gold, uh, the wheat amongst the chaff. And um, I'm certainly uh, very honored and, and uh, it's a great pleasure always to welcome, I think, one of the finest documentarians of the paranormal. And uh, the, uh, the podcast is exceptional, as I say. It's called Euphemet, and Jim Perry is the host and creative producer He's also an entrepreneur based in the Pacific North Weird, as he likes to call it. His uh, fascination for the anomalous events that happen in people's lives inspired the creation of Euphemet. It's a critically acclaimed audio documentary podcast about the strange, and perhaps more importantly, our relationship to it. Everyone has a weird story, and Jim is devoted to uncovering the intimate, human-centric version of these supernatural tales Jim Perry, welcome back. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm fantastic. Now that I'm here with you, Richard, appreciate coming on again, and it's a it's a real highlight and a and a joy to you know sit here with you and and chat about all this weirdness. Uh, Euphemet again is um, a made up word. Explain yes. what it means. 
Well, you know, it, it's kind of a euphemism. It's uh, a, a playful devil, a euphemistic Baphomet of sorts. And uh, I, I wanted to ride that liminal line as much as I could to try to, you know, sort of halfway describe that state in which people are in when they experience the anomalous, which is a little up, a little down, a little left, a little right, a little uh, happiness, a little uh, Baphomet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> euphomet.com and it's spelled e-u-p-h-o-m-e-t.com but the uh, the link is in the uh, episode notes euphomet.com explain uh i mean i i gave kind of a, a brief description of what it's about but explain i mean the soundscape is is incredible the storytelling oh, is you. incredible just tell us a little bit about what what the podcast is about well you know, after my obsessive curiosity and and fanned, uh, and fandom over something like Coast to Coast AM and the relationship I developed with AM radio, uh, as I got a little older, I also developed a relationship with public broadcasting and became an incredibly huge fan of, of, of shows like This American Life. And, you know, these uh, these documentary, you know, radio story shows that, you know, they have a bunch of producers and they fly all over the world and they collect these really interesting, unique, emotive stories about people in their everyday life. Well, to me, I, I kind of wanted to smash together th that world of Coast to Coast AM, the world of the anomalous that I grew to love and, and be so fascinated with, uh, with something that felt like public radio, that, that had a, a strong human-centric manifesto attached to it. And so essentially that euphemet was my my effort in doing that. I, I think certainly it's it's transformed into its own thing. Um I think my love for, you know, sort of film score and 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 rich moods and 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 certain artistic visions, uh, and also my curiosity about places and excuses to travel to them, uh, to meet these unique people, have all created this pretty unique thing, I think. I, I think when you listen to Euphemet. As I did earlier today, actually, to, you know, I re-listened episodes to kind of refresh myself in, in the world of You've Met because I, have, I am taking a, a little bit of a hiatus to recharge. But by listening to it, I was like, this doesn't really sound like anything else that I listen to. And, and that's pretty cool to be able to take a step back and go like, yeah, this, this sounds different. This feels different. So um, over the last few years, you know, we've done... I believe 51 or 52 episodes of the series. Each one of those different individuals with different experiences at the end of the day, uh, each of them not quite being about the paranormal phenomenon or the event that, 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 you know, happened to these individuals, but really what, what that circumstance, what that situation, how it changed their life and make no mistake that from, you know, the smallest, you know, witness of an anomalous light in the sky to a full-bodied apparition, these events change people's lives in a very fundamental way. And often they relate very closely to things like their upbringing, uh, traumas they experienced, different challenges, and different joys. And so, it, you know, I'm going on here, but I guess you're giving me an opportunity here to... Um, revisit the show at a very interesting time in my life and i'm gaining a new perspective and a new love for what me and other people that work on the show have been trying to do all these years so we're going to play some excerpts from 
some past episodes of Euphemed. And uh, some of them are, you know, longish. Some of them, you know, three, four minutes. But it's it's so compelling uh, that they're they're worth playing in their entirety. And it'll give you a, a taste of, again, the production value, the storytelling, the attention to detail, the soundscape, the mood, the mood, the music, and so forth. Um, we're going to begin with an episode, episode forty-three. It's called "The Cave," about a man and uh, I guess two of his buddies. Uh, that end up on the wrong side of the tracks uh, and encounter a doppelganger. Um, do you want to say anything else before we just, uh, I, I, I push play here? No, go for it. All right, this is called The Cave. When I was 16, maybe I was 17, it was myself and two friends who um, we, were, we were walking, this is in, in New Hampshire at this point, and we're walking along some train tracks and it's super, super late at night. And up ahead, there's like an overpass. And so there's like the train tunnel that the train would pass underneath underneath the road by with a single light, like kind of o like hanging, hanging off over the tracks at the far end. And it's in kind of a nasty part of town. Like you you're right on the edge of kind of like uh, like housing projects that kind of have a have a reputation for for like people getting their asses kicked and stuff. Like it was definitely not the sort of place that we wanted to run into a couple of people emerging from, you know, the the underside of this this overpass. And so like that's what happened. And so we're about I don't know like a quarter a quarter mile out from from this, and we see like three people come out from underneath the overpass. Um, on the other side of the tracks. And so we're walking along. Each one of us is like, ah, oh, and one of my friends is like, Hey, just, you know, like, just look at your feet. Like, don't say anything. Don't look at them. Like, don't like no eye contact. Don't, don't do anything. You know, like, let's just, let's mind your own business. And as they get closer and closer and closer, like I cannot resist like taking a look. And so they're, right on the other side of the tracks at this point. And I look up and I look across and I go, I just about go insane in the moment because what I'm looking at is myself looking at me and my two friends with their heads down, walking on the other side of the tracks in the opposite direction. I kind of like, I used to like my breath caught and we kept walking and eventually we get to the underside of the, of the overpass and we stop. I light a cigarette. <laughs> my friend goes, I just saw the weirdest thing. You guys, um, I saw myself and you two, uh, walking on the other side of the tracks. And I go, and I like, I like I freaked out and I was like, Oh my God, that's just what I saw. Except it was me looking at me. And the other guy was like, Holy sh you guys, this is this is insane. Now it should be noted that at the time, the three of us had eaten had eaten mushrooms. Anybody who's who's partaken of psilocybin mushrooms will tell you, like even these like magnificent like gigantic Terence McKenna doses, will tell you like that's not how that that's not how that drug works. Like that's not how any psychedelic works. Like you don't. With, with the exception of maybe DMT, like there's the, they, you don't have that kind of like vision where, you know, you see a full like apparition of a person. Like you it just, it, that's not how it works. It just messes with your, with your, your understanding of, of, 
you know, with your thought patterns and the way that you kind of process stimulus like it, but you do not have those kind of like full body hallucinations. So for the three of us to have this like shared moment um, in this wildly altered state of consciousness blew my mind. And we would we would tell we would spare no opportunity to tell people about that. But it's not lost on me in the same time that this happened in a place where like they merged from underneath something like they came out of this like liminal space of of just a you know like a like a train uh, like overpass like a train tunnel so it's so strange but yeah there you go the cave episode (laughs) 43 of euphemed uh how do you find these people because they're so real yeah and they're but they're they're their ability to retell the story is so honed. I mean, I'm not suggesting, you know, yeah. that it's rehearsed or anything like that, mm-hmm. but these, they, they convey such authenticity and, and they tell the story so well, where do you find them? Yeah. Well, I find them all over the place, but more often than not, they're listeners now, you know, uh, it didn't start that way. Of course it started with, individuals that, that I would sort of track down in a story I try to find. But now they're just emails to me. And hey, I've listened to your show for a long time. I haven't told this story very much, but I think your show would potentially be the perfect place for me to get this out. And so, you know, the process is uh, we do connect and I, I do you know, kind of, um, I vet these individuals a little bit before we even agree to do one of these. We exchange various emails. I ask them to, to sort of write out some of these experiences to, to try to jog some of their memories. And then we have a really long conversation over the phone before we go into any sort of editing. And what I like to do with these individuals is allow them just space, just space and a comfortable place where they're able to just be themselves, right? Just be themselves and tell the story as if they were at a party or they were talking to their best friend. And uh, so far, because these people have been listeners, they already feel like we have a relationship. And in a way, I, I won't argue, I think we do. Uh, it's just a very unique one-sided one for the most part. But they really feel like they know me. And I don't know, Richard, you, you know, uh, do people know you? You know what I mean? Uh, the, the listeners spend hundreds and hundreds of hours listening to our voices and our reactions and our instincts at play, right? So uh, really, it, it makes my job a lot easier that folks come through, they already know what the show is, they trust the process, and they can just speak their truth. So do you do all of these in the field? Do you travel to wherever this person is? Or is it done over Zoom? Or how do you record? It's about half and half now. So when we were experiencing the lockdown, everything changed. Uh, At that point in time, I still wanted to continue doing the show. And so I started, I did a season that was completely fully remote and, uh, you know, just using Zoom and other uh, broadcasting tools. uh, I would send people professional microphones, uh, you know, which are relatively inexpensive nowadays. But but still, if they didn't have a microphone for their setup, I'd send them a microphone, some headphones. And uh, we would treat it as if we were, you know, there together. Uh, and it's a similar technique that public radio has done for, for, for decades, right? Um, sending a, a producer out in the field to, to, to then conduct it remotely um, in person. So 
what I had discovered during that process that had changed my philosophy once we, you know, sort of exited lockdown was that there was no shortage of emotion or or quality of memory or conversation once we went remote. In fact, conversely, people felt more comfortable to go even deeper when we were in a screen and that there wasn't the pressure of, you know, me being in their living room or whatever. Uh, I, I still certainly do that. Uh, I still, you know, make these trips and, and go out there, but it's about half and half now. We're going to take a quick time out, come back, and um, we've got another story lined up, another episode from Euphemet. It's uh, a filmmaker who has been haunted by a djinn. I believe this is uh, called At Night, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It's coming up next. Jim Perry, the host of Euphemed. Stay with us. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're hanging out with Jim Perry, a very talented young podcast documentarian and the podcast is called euphemet euphemet.com all the details are in the episode notes uh, but there is nothing like it it's uh, he, he is a true original and the euphemet is um, a paranormal podcast like you've never heard it's it's done in a documentary style it's uh, it's got a terrific soundscape terrific storytelling it's very intimate uh we're going to hear one now this is um Episode 48, and it's called At Night. I mentioned it's about a filmmaker who's been haunted by a djinn. Uh, what else do you want to say before we roll tape, as we used to say? <laughs> Very nice. Well, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that that uh, Zishan here is, is a filmmaker that has experienced a, a really traumatic past, uh, a, a very troublesome household, and its effects... I mean, he he really saw it not only just like sort of uh, psychically, right, uh, and mentally, but paranormally. And I think he's going to be describing a little bit of what became an even bigger issue as he got older. When my parents would get into their arguments, it was never a screaming. I don't want to say never. It, it typically wasn't a screaming, shouting violence. It was a sense of just this imposing dread. I mean, I remember getting home from school and walking into our apartment and feeling like the air was just thick. You know, I was walking into this atmosphere and my parents would be not talking to one another, but still very aware of one another, almost like two predators making sure that the other one wasn't going to attack first, or sometimes, you know, one would be 
incredibly vulnerable and the other person would just be sharp and aggressive. It was after those fights that I would start to feel this presence felt like something was looking at me specifically looking at me and you know actively following me across the room and the first memory I have of it is is walking into I shared a room with my older sister at the time and she was you know doing whatever older sisters do and out with her friends and I walked into this room and I, I remember seeing this black mass in my bed. It felt like it was breathing. I felt like I could hear it. I didn't feel like I walked into a room and I had interrupted something. I felt like it had been there and it was waiting for me and it was in my bed and that's where I should be too. So that was the first time it really I think made itself known to me. And then over the years, it would become more tactile. You know, I would, I would be able to make out pieces of it more or get a, a better glimpse at it, or I would feel a specific type of recognition in it. It became less of a formless void and more of a, I think a representation of certain things to me in my head that I found just objectively really terrifying. That's powerful on on a number of different levels. I mean, even the discussion around his parents' relationship, I mean, never mind the the gin and the paranormal aspect, the recalling the, 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 the trauma, the childhood trauma of walking in on his parents fighting was so powerful and profound. Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, listen, these are emotional sessions when we have them too, you know, and, uh, it, it is, listen, it's pretty common that at the end of some of these things, myself and the subject are, are, are pretty, can be pretty teary eyed. Um, because so often once you dig, a little bit further. Um, it's in my experience, at least the folks that I talk to, the anomalous things that they experience are often tied to things that are deep rooted somewhere in humanity. And I don't know if that has the ability to unlock potentially a frequency or a response, but it appears that's the case, at least in 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 my study of this and in my work. So and the interesting thing about Zishan is that, you know, during the the full episode, he describes how this continued to occur to him, and it got worse. Uh, as he got older, he uh, turned sex eventually to to cope with with the trauma of his childhood. He became a sex addict, and on occasion, this entity would appear in his bed, and if not at first almost like some muse, it became an identifier for him that, buddy, you're about to have a choice to make. And you can go this way or you can go that way, but I'm here to remind you that you can make a choice in this. And so he started to shift 
his perspective on what this entity was from something that was looming and dreadful and fearsome to something that was actually there with some vulnerability and some expression to let him know that he wasn't alone and that he could change his behavior. And what a paradigm shift and what a crazy thing to think about. Really? <laughs> uh, um, the, 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 the thoughtfulness in explaining, you know, his first encounter when he said it, it wasn't, it didn't appear as if I had interrupted something. It was there waiting for me. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's so, that's very thoughtful. Uh, so often when you speak, when I speak to witnesses, maybe they've told the story too many times or they, they just lack the insight. It's just sort of a throwaway, you know, well, I looked up and there was a flying saucer. Yeah. It, but you really managed to, to, uh, to dig down deep with them and really draw. I mean, it's obviously they're genuine, authentic people, but there's also a skill there from the, from the interviewer to draw these stories out of, out of them in, in such a way. So, uh, Thank great you. job, Thank Jim, you. we're going to take another time out. We're going to come back and, um, Let's see. Oh, we've got a, a seance at the uh, fabled Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> this is the Chelsea Hotel in New York, I'm guessing. Yes, that's right. All right. This is the uh, the Chelsea Hotel, if memory serves, was the uh, the final resting place of, or not resting place, but where Dylan Thomas uh, that's right. shuffled off his mortal coil. All right. We'll come back and uh, Sid and Nancy. Yeah, that's right. Nancy as well. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's get to that break, and then we'll get back to the Chelsea Hotel. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Jim Perry, host, creative producer of Euphemet, terrific, multi-layered, multifaceted, documentary-style uh, podcast on the paranormal. All right, so let's get to uh, New York and the fabled Chelsea Hotel and a seance. How did this come about? Well, you know, it occurred to me while following the story of this modern-day Fordian, this paranormal investigator and filmmaker, Andrew Jewell, he does a great zine called Strange Days and has really committed a better part of his adult life to, you know, continuing to explore and, and study and, and, and really dig into this material and, and put it together and present it in really artful ways. It occurred to me that, that where he was doing this was not only the home for the, the, the birthplace for American occultism in a lot of ways and also American paranormal culture. You know, you're looking at uh, this part of Manhattan where, you know, the occultists were, where Long John Nebel was broadcasting his show, you know, uh, the New York Fortean Society, uh, the, the Council of Nine, uh, just endless amounts. Uh, Madame Blavatsky, it just, the list goes on in terms of paranormal and occult culture. Well, sitting right there is the hub of art in New York City and, and renegade art, you know, from Beats to Andy Warhol to you name it, uh, the amount of life and energy and art that went through this, this hotel called Chelsea Hotel was just kind of revolutionary. 
And so Andrew began to wonder, well, what if some of these cats are still kicking around? And if so, what's their opinion on, you know, this sort of occult hotbed? And so um, I just basically was was a part of this seance that we did right there at the Chosey Hotel to see if we could connect. All right, let's have a listen. Let's take a moment to ground ourselves and to connect ourselves to this physical space where we are. And the hope being that we get to this space that is safe for us, also safe for anything or anyone that wants to join us. We're gonna declare our intentions. We will be very clear about what we are inviting and what we are not inviting. And this grounding technique will help us stay here in this physical space, just the four of us. So I think everybody should close their eyes. Before any mediumship session, Andrew wants to create a certain space to encourage the possibility of positive contact and to better connect ourselves, to better protect ourselves from those darker elements. The light that we sent off into space last night, picture that same beam coming back, coming from above and coming right through your chest, all the way through your feet. And it's keeping you grounded. It's keeping you on this plane. Inhale again. And exhale. Think about opening the veil temporarily. Think about our intentions of creating a safe space for something to make contact, but most importantly, creating a safe space for us while we try this experiment. For the next little while, we are here as receptors. We're opening ourselves, providing a safe space for anything that wants to join us. <laughs> is there anybody in the Hotel Chelsea that wants to communicate with us tonight? This is a safe space to do so. Blindfolded, lost of your earthly senses, you listen to the rhythmic static until it speaks to you. Bits of radio broadcast diced into bits as if some cut-up art experiment to tell a word, a phrase, a call. Andrew is listening right now. Calling. Who are you calling?
it is very hard to communicate through these methods, and it may, it's probably new for you. Can you Will you, again, believe? There's a little taste of the seance <laughs> at the Chelsea Hotel. So just set, set the scene for us. There's four of you. Is this? Are you in a hotel room? Are you in a, I don't know, a, a, a conference room? Where are you in the Chelsea Hotel? We're, we're in one of the hotel rooms. You know, uh, for the longest time, this, this had been a building where people had just rented out or lived. And uh, within the last five years, six years, they started to slowly convert many of those many of those apartments into proper hotel rooms once again. And so we were in this hotel room that uh, is one of those hotel rooms that makes you never want to go back to a different hotel room ever again, but you know, that's just not going to be a thing. It had two bathrooms, Richard. It was incredible. There was a fireplace, uh, but it really had set the, had set the tone for maybe a, a simpler time of friends who would collect themselves in these rooms in, in midtown Manhattan, perhaps to have seance parties to try to connect. And I will say, uh, it wasn't, uh, dictated within that piece of tape, but, uh, the, 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 we had done a, uh, a spirit board at first, um, with, with limited results. And then we had switched to performing the Estes method, which I, I, I'm, I am sure I have talked about on this program before, but, is essentially this method of divination that was created by uh, three paranormal researchers while a, a, a very long investigation, a five-year-long investigation of the Stanley Hotel in Estes, Colorado. This technique is you use a, uh, a, a, a ghost box, essentially, which is a, a broken radio. It has a tuner that skips at certain, um, you, you know, a certain BPM. And uh, you wear noise-canceling headphones with that and put on a blindfold so that essentially the receiver is picking up on words and phrases and, and sayings, and that's all they can hear. And so it creates a relationship to those outside of them where you can ask questions, and uh, sometimes you get into very, very long-form conversations. Mostly, no, right? Mostly it's... Uh, little bits and pieces of words and stuff like that. So there's not a big communication, but I've, I've known uh, some who have reported to, to have uh, conversations in depth with call and response back and forth for longer than a half an hour, or 45 minutes. So in this case, if, if I'm seeing this in my mind's eye, Andrew is wearing the ear noise canceling headphones. Yeah, correct. To the spirit box, someone in the, in the, uh, in the group, I'm not sure if it's you or someone in the group yep. basically made it known to whatever spirits may be present that Andrew is going to be the receiver of the information so that they should direct their comments to Andrew. That's so correct. And then he is repeating these words and phrases that are coming through his noise-canceling headphones that are plugged into his spirit box. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it creates a scenario where there is uh, is no influence from the outside world into the receiver. And the receiver is essentially, I mean, the theory behind it. The theory, you know, is the receiver is pure, is that they're only receiving what those bits of audio are that are coming through. Um, it's it's fascinating. It's also very, for the uninitiated, uh, the first couple of times you do it can be very, very spooky because it immediately seems 
like there's responses now for you know sort of the rugged experienced ghost investigator especially someone like carl pfeiffer who is you know one of the inventors of this process it takes a lot a, a lot to impress them you know you're not going to string together a couple words and call it a response and be like bingo there it is but for others it's very impressive and i think of anything it is one of those methods that sets the tone for an investigation it it sets the stage for those that are maybe a little um less open-minded or cautious or skeptical to go oh wait maybe more is possible and so i don't know i think it's the ultimate icebreaker <laughs> <laughs> yes um it'll certainly uh, it could certainly chill you to the bone that's for sure without giving <laughs> the episode away um which spirit were you were you trying to were you trying to reach out to one in particular or just who was ever present and who do you think came through? Yeah, we were really trying to do a roll call. And in fact, it's an active investigation right now because what we had pieced together, uh, it was pretty consistent, a message of someone falling down, something about the second floor, third floor, falling down, 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 down. And uh, I had uh, I had a, a session where I was the receiver uh, Tim Rothschild, who's a close friend and uh, a shamanic uh, healer, um, listeners of you've met are familiar with Tim. Uh, he had a session where he listened to it as well. And so it was consistent amongst the three of us, the, the, the same theme, the same message. And so right now, in fact, it, Andrew has been digging into records, trying to see if there's any corroborative information about that. So, you know, it's been in my experience that most often when you do this method, it is it is like that uh that consistent theme within paranormal investigation where you're tapping on the shoulder of something and it goes oh oh there you are you want to play okay let's play so with the Estes session it will typically not give you whatever you're looking for but it will say well what about this over here and so <laughs> it's very consistent that it will lead you down it is great at creating other rabbit holes for you uh, to go down and uh, to get lost in. All right. That was uh, episode uh, 49 from Euphemet. All right. Finally, uh, an autopsy tech whose empathic abilities derailed her career and changed her life. What else can you tell us about it before I hit play? Well, for this one, I do want to warn people that there's talk of self-harm and, and suicide. And so if, you know, someone's sensitive to that, I, I do want you to know about that up front. Um, listen, uh, this subject, Jesse, was uh, an autopsy tech, and she had really discovered kind of in the hard way that she was an empath. And the events that we'll hear in this clip are later detailed in the episode to have completely changed the trajectory of her life. Episode 51 from Euphemed, Postmortem. For whatever reason, even in the beginning, when I first became an autopsy technician, I was very comfortable being around like deceased people. So it, that is never something that even once prior to this situation had ever made me feel anything. Um, for me, it's very science-based. I can't emphasize, I think, enough how much that just was a non sequitur for me. It's fine. It doesn't bother me. The office that I worked for was really struggling with staffing issues. 
originally when I had started there, I was an intern and it was like slated with the possibility of me and the other autopsy technician that I was working with becoming employees. We were supposed to be just techs. So our job was to do filing when we weren't doing autopsy and then otherwise just run the morgue. And that involves cutting. I was very adept with the full examination. This was forensic autopsy. <laughs> I was fascinated every day. Every single day was different. Even the days that were the same were still fun. <laughs> Again, just the staffing issues. I remember one day they asked me like, hey, we need you actually to, if you feel comfortable with it, to go out on scene and to help us collect, you know, a dead person. And they were kind of obviously just wanted me to get my feet wet everywhere, but it was genuinely something at this point that it was possibly going to be a thing where it's like they need me and the tech to actually do this sometimes, like as part of our job. And as long as there's nothing moral wrong with what you're asking me to do, like if you ask me to do something, I'm going to say yes and I'm going to go do it. This was not my first suicide. In fact, most of what I dealt with was were suicides. We show up to this person's house. I go into the garage. He's killed himself by hanging himself basically like from the rope that would go up with the garage door. It's not even been it's not even been 12 hours yet since he passed because rigor mortis takes 12 hours to set into the body. So he's still very um, his like limbs are still very malleable. The family wasn't there, thank God. Um, but what happened was I was already in there taking pictures and just trying to go about like the scene as we normally would proceed. A person in a UPS van starts coming down the driveway. It's kind of a long driveway. So we kind of scramble just to make sure that he doesn't see anything that wouldn't be something we would want him to see. So. It was like an absolute cluster Like I got separated from my partner and what happened was they shut the door. So I'm standing alone in the dark next to a hanging body. When I do tell this story, sometimes like, of course, it's like skeptic, skeptics will say you were just in like a very spooky environment and that's kind of what facilitated it and i was like i literally cannot tell you how much that this was just a tuesday for me so that's one of the things that makes this moment so weird is because my the emotion i was feeling then was just calm minorly irritated with the situation wanting to proceed and then all of a sudden it's just like i i start feeling what i've heard people just like describe as a panic attack um Mine are all auditory, like anytime I've ever had a panic attack, my ears ring and I kind of just have a hard time starting to come back to like hear what's happening in the vicinity. I've never instantly wanted to kill myself before. I don't really understand how that would happen. So at the same time, I'm experiencing all of just this like dread, despair, feeling like I'm like the house is burning and I need to jump type of feelings but at the same time that's happening all of the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I become just kind of like very primally animally aware of something over here and it's not necessarily the body because I'm right there it's like in the corner of this very large garage 
Wow. Mm. That's, uh, <laughs> you've done it again. That's, that's powerful. That's yeah. Powerful. Well, for her, it, it completely changed her life and she wasn't able to relate, um, in the way she did before with, with death. And as an empath, she realized that she really had this ability to feel what individuals were feeling, whether they were alive or dead. And so that changes the dynamic when you're around um, deceased for your career. And she eventually, she had to soon after quit um, that line of work and get into something else. Did she have any insight as to why it happened on that, that one particular occasion when every other time it was just, as she said, another Tuesday? She didn't, you know, and that's what's really interesting is that most often the the surprising nature of this is similar to some sort of health effects. You know, people don't understand why out of nowhere they have to replace this tooth. It's just a form of bad luck or circumstance, but the doctor can't really you know, sort of diagnose or tell you why. Um, so, you know, in that sort of way, it, it was very similar in this situation uh, as to, you know, she had been sensitive before, but because the nature of that circumstance and that particular patient perhaps is the thing re that really brought that out. Um, I think it relates probably more to, you know, that, uh, that individual in, in that, in, in that state um, and whatever maybe they were carrying around. Um, that is one thing that she had considered being a possibility is that in that event, um, they were not alone in that space and that potentially there was an outside factor, potentially an outside entity that had a hand in that. And she even believes that maybe that entity is with her to this day. These, uh, episodes, uh, these are from last season or? Uh, they're from this season. Yeah. This season. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How many episodes typically do you do a year? Well, it depends on how ambitious uh, me and uh, my, my editor, John, get. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I had to take a hiatus is because we went on a run of doing, uh, I think, 16 or 17 episodes uh, for this season that we had just, you know, sort of wrapped up and, and, you know, we were trying to, sh we were shooting for some even numbers, Richard, we were trying to get to the sixth season, uh, and launch that with episode number 60. And so we still had quite a few episodes to get, but the thing with the show is that once you get into a state where you're trying to be greedy and you're trying to pump out too many, it just doesn't work, you know, because there is a flow of authentic individuals that pop up in my email or their stories occur to me or I meet them and you kind of uh, it, it's hard to scout in 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 the way or, or book like a traditional show because there is there's so much forethought and so much preparation that goes into actually getting the right stories and 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 the guests that I think I'll be able to help them tell their story the best so um yeah uh, we were I think we got out of this season um, without diminishing, you know, any of our intent. Um, but I could definitely see a situation where we had to, you know, here's the thing is the show, uh, we drop it every two weeks when it's during the season and we, it's two people doing it um, <clears throat> to, to compare 
uh, a show that would be similar to ours in the public radio sphere, such as This American Life or Snap Judgment, there's 15 to 20 people on staff and budgets that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, um, you know, we keep it pretty scrappy and uh, <laughs> have to learn, have to learn. And I think we are learning where our boundaries are with with producing this show and focusing on uh, continuing the the quality that we hope we bring to the storytelling and and uh, the justice to these individual stories without you know uh losing ourselves in trying to uh, get as many as possible yeah you can't force it you can't force it there will be a a season seven i hope yes yeah yeah we're going to continue on um you know we're in that stage right now where uh, new guests are occurring, and I'm also trying to really um, figure out some other some other things I want to do. You know, I I had produced a, a a live radio show for the last two and a half years. It was, uh, you know, it was birthed during the pandemic during lockdown, and it was a way for me to stay in contact with my listeners and develop deeper relationships. And through that. Man, we, I think everyone that was a part of that project, we made a lot of friends and uh, it was a great space. And I, I think I got um, I became better as an interviewer in, in some ways. And uh, I, I think I'm, I'm taking all of that and I'm taking the last season of the Youth Met that we did. And uh, I'm trying to compile that together to see what really worked and what didn't. And um, also just feel into the authenticity of what we were trying to accomplish uh, from day one. And, um, you know, when you're in the flow, I feel like I can kind of lose some of that, um, I don't know, uh, responsibility, but also levity of, of that situation and, and, uh, how to balance those, um, best. Jim Perry, Euphemet and euphemet.com is the website. Jim, thank you so much for sharing some snippets of some of these remarkable episodes. No, thank you so much, Richard. I, I always appreciate coming on the show and talking with you. It's just a, it's a pleasure. All right. We'll talk again soon. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.